We're at the end of our first full day, and I imagine for most of us it's been a very rich day with ups and downs. How about I'm going to do a survey. If you're, you can give me either a thumbs up, a thumb sideways, or a thumbs down for just, just your general feeling about the day. So one, two, three. Okay, a lot, lot of thumbs up. Some thumbs sideways. I don't see any thumbs down. I'm sure there are out there. I can't really see. A couple of thumbs down. Okay. So that's about, that's about right. We're all going to have an experience that's going to be different. And um, sometimes we enter these retreats and they're very powerful and beautiful and enlivening and heart-opening. And sometimes we come to these retreats and we're just slogging through. Or we're dealing with physical pain, emotional pain. We're dealing with obstacles that get in the way of our practice, or so it appears. And there are times that we touch into this, the most beautiful states imaginable, and such a great sense of joy and freedom. How many people go camping or backpacking? Anybody? Lots of you, yeah. Um, have you ever had a trip go off without a hitch? There's always something, right? There's something that goes wrong. Shout out what might go wrong on a backpacking trip or a camping trip. Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes. <laughs> Forest fire. Forest fire, uh-huh. <laughs> Forget the fuel canister. Lightning. Rain. Bears. Bees, bears. Sick kids. Stomachs, oh, these all sound, it doesn't sound too fun, (laughs) what you're describing. Yes, this happens. All of this is true. And I'm also imagining incredible things happen. So give me a a little example of something wonderful that happens on these trips. Sorry? Vertical gardens. Fish jumping right out of the water in the morning. Cooking over a campfire. Sorry? Making tinctures. Incredible summits, views, where your mind just gets blown, right? Where you see the most extraordinary sights. Stars, yeah. Waterfalls, natural beauty. Okay, so we can go on and on, but what I want to point out is that Like a major trip out into nature, an excursion, um, our spiritual life can be quite like that. We can encounter the really, really awful stuff, and we can encounter the sublime. And this retreat, in a sense, is a microcosm like that. We'll encounter, we might go into the depths of our stuff, and we might also touch into incredible beauty. And it's all part of it. And that's the most important thing to get. That it's not supposed to be this thing where you get here and it just gets better, 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 and then, ding, you're enlightened. (laughs) I have this cartoon. I didn't bring it right now, but it's um, two monks sitting together, and one of them turns to the other and says, could you refrain from saying ka-ching every time you get enlightened? (laughs) So, um, so... There's a sense I think we have with anything, whether it's a hiking, camping trip, or a big project we're working on, or coming to a retreat, or the long-term vision of our spiritual lives, that it just go, that's going to go in a straight line and just go up, 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 up. It's only going to get better. I'm going to get stronger, more powerful, more awake, more free, more liberated. And in some ways, or, you know, I'm going to see more beautiful things, everything's going to be great. And in some ways, there's a movement, in my view, a movement towards more and more freedom that happens as we're practicing here and, and as we live our, as we lead our lives on a spiritual journey. But it's pretty bumpy. There's lots and lots of ups and downs. So you can kind of see it maybe like this. If you can see me, I'm, I'm making lots of ups and downs going 
but up, up, up. Or another metaphor is the metaphor of the spiral. That we, we constantly are spiraling and sometimes we're spiraling back into the muck. And the difficult things happen, but then we go out into the beautiful vistas and it's incredible and it's, then it gets really hard again and we encounter some new aspect of ourselves that's so hard and it just keeps moving, keeps moving along. But freedom is possible. That's the amazing thing. Freedom is possible. And as we do this practice, what we will see, like we learn on um, a big camping trip, is that the obstacles are part of the path. That we think if we have only a good experience, then everything is going to be okay. But actually, it's the difficult experiences that are just as welcome. And they may not be welcome internally, but we can welcome them because that's where we grow and that's where we learn. And instead of becoming something that we push away and try to get rid of, they become something that teach us about ourselves. And we realize that, oh, we can wake up, we can bring our mindfulness right into our area of challenge, into our area of difficulty, and find freedom there. And that it's possible. So... Let's talk about some of the challenges that are arising that have been happening since you've been here on the retreat. I know a big one that many of you have encountered has been physical pain. So just raise your hand if you've had some physical pain this retreat. You can look around and see mm, at least half of you, if not more. This is absolutely normal, unfortunately, because there's pain in life. And because our bodies, that's the nature of our bodies at some point or another to encounter pain. And there's physical pain and there's emotional pain. Okay, if you didn't have physical pain, how about emotional pain? (laughs) Okay, a good portion of you. You're not supposed to have any experience, I just want to say. It's not like you show up on this retreat and there's a formula, what happens to you. For everyone, it's really different. Our job is to be with whatever the experience is, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So physical pain arises and there's so much discomfort and maybe we have chronic pain or maybe we have something that we're currently dealing with, but physical pain can be really challenging when we're meditating. And we can have a sense like it's ruining my trip, just like when it rains when you're camping, it's camping is ruining my trip. But actually, it's part of what you have to experience. And the great news is we can learn how to work with it through mindfulness so that we can have a different relationship to pain. Many years ago, most, m- many of you I'm sure are familiar with John Kabat-Zinn, who's really been central in making mindfulness a household name, if you want to say that. When he was, he was working at the University of Massachusetts and there were all these chronic pain patients and they were struggling because none of the typical remedies had been working. They had tried all the medications, they had tried all sorts of uh, tools and things, nothing was working. And so John thought, why don't I try to teach them meditation and see what happens? So he taught them mindfulness over a period of time and what later became mindfulness-based stress reduction, his program that he developed. And what he found was that most of the people responded really well to the mindfulness in two ways. For some people, the, the, the pain actually began to decrease. The symptoms decreased. But for the majority of the people, it wasn't that the symptoms decreased, but their ability to tolerate it increased. So their relationship to pain shifted, and they were able to be present with something that was previously intolerable. And they reported that the quality of life improved significantly. So sometimes you've heard, maybe you've heard the phrase, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Heard that? In other words, we're going to experience pain in life. We're going to experience difficulties. It's inevitable. You can't get away from it. But what you can do is you have control, in a sense, over how you relate to the pain. You can experience pain in your body and think, oh no, something's wrong. This is terrible. It's going to last forever. I blame myself. Why did this happen? That's suffering. 
pain is just the physical sensations that are happening. And we can shift our awareness from being overwhelmed by these physical sensations that seem like they're never going to go away to just being present with pain as it is. And sometimes it can even move from painful sensations to interesting sensations that I can be really curious about that happen to be uncomfortable. So we can make the shift taking off the suffering, essentially, if you can say, the stories we create about it, and coming more into being present, able to tolerate the pain. So one practical suggestion I have for you if you're working with pain is try to find a part of your body that doesn't feel painful. Maybe it's your feet, maybe it's your legs, let, it could be your hands. Let your attention come to rest there. It might be your breath. And keep your attention there for a bit. And then every now and then come into the, bring your attention to the physical pain in your body. Feel it, sense it, notice what happens to it. And then come back to the place that feels good or neutral. And in this way, you're not overwhelmed by the pain, but you're not avoiding it. You're bringing your mindfulness to bear, to open to it, to be present with the pain, with compassion. Can you bring some of the loving kindness that Mark taught you today? Can you bring that to this body and mind that experiences so much pain? So we can shift our relationship to pain. Other things we encounter that are difficult, and of course there's many of them, but there tends to be really specific things that most of us come in contact with, things like sleepiness and restlessness. And so I know we've talked a bit about sleepiness. I'm imagining many of you today were quite sleepy at some point during the retreat. Am I right? Yes. Now, For some of us, we just don't get enough sleep. And I think if you look statistically at what people get for sleep, it's something like six hours, but we really need eight hours a night. So I'm I'm betting that most of you are tired. And you come to this place, and you've been so rushed to get here for most of us. You get here, it's quiet, it's peaceful. We encourage you to close your eyes. The room's a little dim, and then we're out. It's not the worst thing in the world. I'm guessing... Getting sleep in this context can be quite nourishing and quite healing in a way. We need to slow down. We live in a culture that's just so sped up. So giving yourself a little bit of time to relax and rest is a good thing. I teach classes um, in Los Angeles, and for many years I had my 80-year-old aunt coming to my classes And she used to say that she got the best sleep of her week in my classes. So um, it's not a terrible thing. However, um, we're not practicing awareness. And so ultimately what happens is it gets frustrating because we're really trying to be present. And so we know that we can stand up, we can open our eyes, we can wiggle our fingers and toes, we can go out and do brisk walking meditation at the end of the sitting. And ultimately, um, we begin to practice with sleepiness. We see that I can fight it, I can resist it, or I can open to it and bring my mindfulness to it. Bring this curious attention to the experience of sleepiness. What is it like? Heaviness in the body, grogginess, kind of woozy sleep. These are all things to notice. So you understand what I'm saying is that it stops being an obstacle. It stops being something that's ruining your meditation. And it becomes something to notice with mindfulness. It is your practice. Your obstacles are your practice in life, and in the meditation retreat, and on a camping trip. Your obstacles are your practice. What makes the best stories, right, from the camping trip? It was the thunderstorm and the bear, not that I saw the beautiful flower. Our obstacles are our practice. So restlessness is the opposite of sleepiness. I'm imagining many of you felt restless this, this, today. Your mind is rushing all over the place. There's a lot going on. And keep in mind, that's absolutely normal. 
we spent 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, however old you are, years being distracted. And suddenly we come here and we say, okay, focus on your breath. Of course that's not what happens. We, our mind goes off, and that's what we've trained our minds to do. And the good news is we can train our minds to do something different. Sometimes when I'll, I'll do a PowerPoint, when I'm giving a lecture about mindfulness, and I have this picture of a brain with muscles. So it's like a, a brain, and then out of it are two arms with these muscles. And it's like we're working out our brain. I always thought it's a little bit of a disgusting image, but it is, um, it is, it, it tells, it speaks to what I'm trying to say here. We have the capacity to change a brain from being distracted all the time to being present. And so when our mind is restless, when we're overwhelmed with restlessness, one thing that's helpful to do is to just open up to a more spacious way of being in your meditation. Opening to sounds, listening to the sounds around us is a very helpful thing to do. Some people find if they pay closer attention, conversely, it helps them to be less restless. And then there's the act of turning your attention to the restlessness itself. What does it feel like in my body and mind? Oh, it's just restlessness. Because ultimately, it's just a mental state passing through us restlessness. Oh, it feels uncomfortable, but it's not an obstacle. It is. It feels like an obstacle. It feels like a hindrance, but truly it is your practice in this moment. And we have the capacity to work with it. Another thing people encounter is doubt. You're doubting yourself. You're doubting the meditation. You're not really sure if you're doing the right thing. Should I pay attention to my stomach or maybe my chest or maybe my nostrils? I'm probably doing this wrong. What do I do? Do Diana and Mark actually know what they're talking about? Do, you know, I mean, you may have many, many doubts going through your mind. Normal. I just want to assure you it's completely normal. In fact, when we learn anything new, we're going to have doubts. If you were learning tennis, you would know, well, how do I hit the ball? You would have doubts about whether you're doing it right. So it's, it's, it's supposed to be happening. But it's really helpful for you to, when you're caught in doubt, the problem with doubt is it can kind of overwhelm us. We, get, we just get lost in it. And we believe it. We believe it really thoroughly. So if you can begin to notice, oh, doubt is here. Look, there's doubt arising in my mind. Isn't that interesting? Then we get a little space from the doubt. Then we're less overwhelmed by the doubt. There's more of, oh, it's just doubt moving through me. And this is true really for any difficult emotion or difficult thought that's happening. These thoughts come into our mind and they hijack us. They take control. They're really, really, they're so powerful. I often talk about my favorite bumper sticker, which says, don't believe everything you think. Have you seen that? When I lived in uh, the East Bay in Berkeley, I used to see it all the time. And then I moved to Los Angeles. I've seen it once (laughs) in 10 years. I'm not kidding. Don't believe everything you think. What, this is what we do when we have difficult thoughts. We believe it. When we have difficult emotions, we're caught in them. We're, we're, we're sort of, they, they hold us by the throat. They grab onto us. We grab onto them. We're stuck in it. But what we're doing with this practice is we're learning to let the thoughts come and go and not be so overwhelmed by these thoughts. We can just say, oh, there's an anxious thought, as opposed to, I'm so anxious. There's an anxious thought moving through me. Very different approach. Oh, I'm really irritated. I'm so pissed off at what my boss did. Well, you know, you can, we can just go on and on and on. Or we can say, huh, I'm noticing irritation in my body. There's tightness in my, in my stomach. My jaw is clenched. My hands are tight and clenched then I'm bringing my mindfulness into my body to see what's really here. And I'm causing what we, I'm creating what's called a little bit of disidentification. Disidentification is when there's more freedom and space, where something moves from being my sleepiness, my restlessness, my doubt, to 
the sleepiness, the restlessness, the doubt that's moving through me, like weather patterns just moving through the sky. When we can do this, there's so much freedom. There's so much freedom. We're not at the mercy of these difficult thoughts and emotions. One of the images I often like to talk about is the image of um, a train. We're, we're really getting on the train. Do you notice that when we meditate, if you think of it this way, the train is like our thoughts. They just build on each other. One thought after the next, after the next. And then the next thing you know, that train is down the track and it's 20 miles down the track and we've been on it. Have you had the experience meditating? You're just thinking, thinking, thinking. One thing leads to the next and suddenly you go, oh, I'm lost in thought. Okay, come back to my breath. So it's like a train leaving the station. Well, you have an option. When you realize it, that you're on that train, you can get off the train. You can get off the train. Or you can never get on the train in the first place. You can stay at the station and let the thoughts go. And find that place of presence, of, of, of awareness, while the thoughts are coming and going. Raise your hand if you've had a moment today where you saw your thoughts coming and going, just coming, moving through you like clouds in the sky. Most of you had that, or many of you anyway, had that experience. Our thoughts feel like they're so overwhelming to us. They can seem like the biggest obstacle. obstacle. What we think becomes a really huge obstacle. But the fact is, they're just thoughts. They're insubstantial. They're coming and going, passing through our experience, our lives. Other obstacles that we run into as we practice are craving, desiring, wanting. You're sitting here meditating and all you can think about is lunch. And it seems like it would be really, because, I mean, the food is quite good, so you could just be thinking, you could spend the entire time thinking about lunch, and that meditation will go by so fast, ding, the bell rang, wow, 30, 40 minutes went by really fast, because I was thinking about lunch, or sushi, or that person, or that thing I wanted to buy, or something. So craving is often the sense, this, this forward motion, desiring an imagined future, fantasizing, has anybody experienced fantasizing since you've been meditating this week? It's a very pleasant way to pass the time. <laughs> However, it is not really meditating. It is fantasizing. And so what we can learn to do is recognize when fantasizing arises and apply some specific antidotes to it. One of the most helpful things to do, I think, if you notice yourself really caught in this imagined future, is to, um, is to remind yourself of your motivation. See if you can reconnect with what brought you here. Because my guess is you didn't come here to spend the entire week thinking about chocolate, weekend thinking about chocolate, right? Although that's very compelling, Okay, maybe not chocolate, maybe a person or something. But um, when we can remind ourselves of what's important, we reconnect with the present moment, with our intention. We can also turn our attention to what it feels like to desire, to long for, to want. And when we do this, we can notice it in our bodies. So just take a moment for one one moment. Close your eyes for a moment. You don't need to shift your posture, but close your eyes for a moment and think of something that you're desiring. This could be a person, a thing, food, an experience. could even be a better meditation. Just notice. And as you desire that thing, notice what's happening in your body. Notice what's happening in your body. Okay, open your eyes. Could you feel a kind of longing in your body? For me, I feel it in my gut, like a really a tensing that's happening. Do you experience that of some sort or some feeling, maybe a feeling in your chest, a kind of forward motion? When we're having certain Thoughts in our mind, uh, thoughts in our mind, not certain thoughts, but 
usually, oftentimes there's a corresponding physiological state that's happening. That if we can get out of the story and into the actual experience in our bodies, that we can cut through the mental loops. We can cut through the sense of this thinking, oh, I want this, I need this. But if we actually just simply feel it, we go, oh, we, ha- we bring in that quality of disidentification. We're less caught by the thing. In a sense, we're doing the practice of letting go, of noticing where we're, our mind is clinging and then letting it go again and again and again. I've been laughing lately because I don't know if any of you have little kids. Um, the movie Frozen has been such a big hit with the younger set. And the, you know, the most popular song from the movie is called Let It Go. <laughs> And so my four-year-old has been singing at the top of her lungs, although she has not seen the movie, but all her friends are singing, has been running around the house screaming, let it go, let it go. She's belting this out. And every time she says it, after I stopped being annoyed by the like 500th time she sang it, is the um, reminder to let go. That whatever is causing the suffering, we can let go. And this is really, and it's not easy to do. I'm not suggesting it's easy to do. But sometimes just the act of bringing mindfulness to the experience allows our mind and heart to let go. And in the letting go, there is freedom. There is freedom. So the, um, so the opposite of the desirous mind is a mind of aversion. I hate this, I don't want to do this, I want to get out of here, this is boring, or we're, think, we're thinking maybe this about the meditation, or maybe we're thinking this about something in our lives, something that we don't like, that we're fearful of, we dislike, but we're having a lot of reactivity, not liking something. Again, this is something that we can practice with, that we can have it become part of our meditation, we can, say, we can notice what it feels like in our bodies. So the obstacle becomes the practice. This is our practice. We can also apply loving kindness. So you've been doing a loving kindness practice today. You can apply that when your mind is filled with a lot of aversion. Bring some loving kindness in. It's easy to have a lot of aversion on retreat for some people. You know, you see somebody, they move a certain way and it kind of bugs you or they, um, they eat something and you don't like the way they're eating or they're coughing or you're judging them or you're judging. They, we have actually a name for this. Um, so I think many of you know this is called Vipassana meditation or insight meditation. So the name for this is called the Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> it's that person that's driving you crazy. And you've just, and it's so interesting because it's projected outward onto somebody else. When, it's a, when we can begin to notice what's happening inside me, we don't have control over anybody else, just in case you thought you might. But when we can begin to look inward and see what is going on here, it's almost like a mindfulness spell. Every time our mind has created an enemy, to look inward and see what, what's going on here, what's going on inside me. Conversely, there's the opposite of the Vipassana Vendetta called the VR, the Vipassana Romance. That's the person you're desiring, the person you've fallen madly in love with, who you're deciding to, you've already figured out how you're going to spend the rest of your life with them. And you have a million stories about how it's all going to work out. And of course, you haven't talked to them. You have no idea if they're single, available, straight, queer. You, have no, you don't know anything. You just know that, that um, they're it. And so, um, and so our mind creates these stories, and we grab onto things, and then we start to suffer. And so how interesting when we can begin to break some of that break loose from that, from the hold these things have on us and go, okay, I'm going to now practice with this longing for this person or I'm going to practice with my anger towards this person, whether this person is here or somewhere else. But it becomes my practice. And it's this tool of coming into our bodies that's very, very helpful as we do this.
Sometimes that aversion turns towards us. And so we, many of us are tremendously self-judgmental. We have so much self-hatred and self-criticism. And it's not just the people sitting in this room. It is, and it's not everybody, but it's a cultural phenomenon. It's, to me, it seems like it may be even worldwide. The self-hatred, the self-judgment, the inner critic. I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect enough. I'm, I don't like what I look like. I don't, and so it shows up in meditation practice all the time. It shows up, I'm not doing it right. It shows up when we compare ourselves to somebody else. It's a really challenging obstacle. It really is. So many of us want to be perfect. Here's a little poem. If you can start the day without caffeine or pet pills, if you can be cheerful ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy for your time, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, then you're probably a dog. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. At least I haven't met anybody yet who's perfect. And in a way, that desire to be perfect sometimes manifests as a desire to kind of get out of who I am and be somebody else. Whereas mindfulness is the invitation back into ourselves, into this body. That's why we keep emphasizing embodiment coming into this body and being present with myself exactly as I am, warts and all. And we cultivate through the practice, we cultivate more and more compassion, compassion for ourselves, compassion for others. We learn to be mindful of the self-hating thoughts that arise and have that quality of disidentification come where we just let go and go, oh, there's a judging thought. How interesting. There were um, one kind of fun exercise, maybe not so fun, but an exercise is to count your judgmental thoughts. It's amazing. But as you do it, you begin to see how utterly habitual this is. You didn't plan to wake up and be mad at yourself, but we do. We get really angry at ourselves or judgmental. So you could count your, so um, you can count your thoughts. You wake up in the morning and you say, maybe not here, but you're all prepared here, but you might say, oh, I slept through the alarm. I'm such a jerk, judging one. And then you go to brush your teeth and you realize that you're making, I, oh no, I'm making too much noise. I'm bugging everybody here, oh, judging, I'm such a jerk, judge, judging too. And if you get to judging 25, it's only 10 in the morning. You start to see the nature of these thoughts of how these work. I once gave this exercise to a group of young girls. I was working with like 14, 15 year olds and I was saying, count your judging thoughts. And I only saw them once a month. And I came back after a month and I'd forgotten, I'd given them the exercise. And one of them came to me and said, 682. And I said, 682 what? And she said, judging thoughts. Well, it turned out that she was in school counting judging thoughts, but not only her own judging thoughts, everybody's judging thoughts. So when people would judge, she'd say, judging 71, judging 200, which was not exactly what I had in mind. But I think she began to see the nature of this, the pernicious nature of the thoughts that judge. And that as we start to take account of them, as we become more self-aware we can begin to have a measure of stepping back, of not being so ruled by them. And as we cultivate more kindness and we practice loving kindness towards ourselves, things can really change. Okay, enough of the hard stuff. Let's talk about the promise, the promises of this path. Why do we do it? Why would we want to do it? 
Well, Women's Health Magazine recently did an article on mindfulness, and they said that mindfulness is known to reduce anxiety and decrease belly fat. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Um, So that's the reason for doing meditation. It, uh, it, you know, as mindfulness gets popularized out in the world, there's a lot out there that gets a little um, peculiar, in my opinion. But um, in addition to decreasing belly fat, let's talk about the cultivation of wisdom, the cultivation of compassion, and the cultivation of equanimity. So as you meditate, you are likely discovering that you're becoming more self-aware. They usually were direct, our, our attention is directed outward, but now we're turning our attention and directing it inward, and we're discovering things about ourselves. And the things might be as mundane as, oh, my left nostril breathes a little differently than my right nostril, but I bet you never knew that, right? So we're finding things out about ourselves, But as we slowly calm, as we work, as the process of calming, focusing, getting our mind to kind of gather, collect, concentrate, this allows the emergence of insight. If you think about it, one way of talking about it, one of my friends who works with children, she she, she holds these glitter balls Right? The glitter ball is just a little plastic rubber ball. You can throw it, and inside it's a lot of glitter. And so she shakes it up, and she says, can you see clearly when it's shook up? And it's, it's all shook up, and of course you can't. And then she puts it down, and she says, okay, everybody breathe. And the kids take about five breaths, and by then the glitter settles down, and then you can see right through. And it's the same analogy with us. We're calming our mind through the practice of steadily attending to one breath after the next, ultimately we can begin to see ourselves and the world more clearly. And sometimes insights will arise about our own past, our own psychology. We might have insights about um, how this practice works. We might have insights about our habits and our patterns. We might have insights about um, the nature of reality. And this is available to us through this practice that we're doing here right now. Insight is not cognitive knowing. It's not figuring something out and you figure it out and figure it out enough and suddenly, boom, you have an insight. It's actually kind of the reverse of that. It's more like a body knowing. It's trusting what's emerging inside one's body. And it's often spontaneous and you don't have a lot of control of it, but suddenly you recognize something. And several people today shared their recognition and exciting things. Like one person was talking about how they were judging people for something and they realized that it's something that they do all the time. Of course, that's why I've been so judgmental. And it just spontaneously arose. So it's sort of like emerging from our bodies. So we can see our patterns. We can see the way our meditation is a microcosm of our lives. So for instance, if we're a type A person that has to get an A, well, let's say a person who has to get an A in everything, you may be trying to get an A in meditation. Or you may be a person who kind of gives up when things get hard and suddenly you're seeing that in your meditation. Or a person who the second there's pain, you, um, you sort of run away from the experience. You're going to be acting out your habits and patterns. And so if you can do so with awareness, everything shifts. Because then it shifts into this disidentification. Instead of, oh no, I'm such a perfectionist, I'm such a bad person. We become self-aware and understanding. Go, oh, isn't that interesting? Look at me doing that pattern again. Amazing. Here it is showing up again. And what's really valuable to know is that when we understand ourselves, when we see ourselves clearly, then we can make changes. When we're acting unconsciously, nothing really changes because we're just caught in our patterns. But when we begin to have insight and see ourselves more clearly, 
things can shift. And these insights can be, as I said, they can be of varying degrees. Sometimes they're insights about the world. Years ago, I was sitting a meditation retreat, and it was a long retreat of several months. And there was um, one day in the middle of winter, it was in, on the East Coast, so it was cold. There was a note on the, on the bulletin board, and the bulletin board said, if you've taken any extra blankets, please return them, because people, some people are cold. Now, I was in a room kind of in the basement, and the room was quite warm, but I had started probably several weeks earlier hoarding blankets <laughs> because I was worried it was going to be cold. <laughs> so winter was coming. I needed my blankets. So I had a pile, like, hmm, about that big. And, um, and I saw this sign, and I sort of thought, well, that doesn't really apply to me <laughs> because I might be cold, so I need to have my blankets. So I would walk past it, and it was like, days and days that this thing was up there and I would see the sign and I would I would notice it and say oh yeah that doesn't really apply to me and then um, after weeks of this <laughs> one day I was looking at the sign and I just said Diana you have not been cold yet you are probably not going to be cold but there's some part of you that's really scared that needs the control the sense of control and it just comes into my mind that if I can control my, at my temperature, if I can control the amount of blankets that I had, then I won't be scared. And so I went downstairs and I took this big pile and I did it about two in the morning so no one would catch me. <laughs> and I took this huge pile of blankets and I plopped it wherever they asked for. And as I did, I remember just starting to cry because I could see not only had I, was this like terror basically ruling me, this terror of being out of control, right? Of being scared, of being lost, of being, of, of, of being cold, and I saw that not only was I doing that, but like everybody is doing it. We're all trying to control our environment. And we're all trying to protect ourselves and protect our families and wall ourselves off and keep us safe. And because we live with a kind of fear and anxiety, that's somewhat just what it means to be human in a certain way. But it's, it's fear and anxiety that separates us and that keeps it separate from, separate from others and it keeps us less generous and less loving. And it was like, just, it just that moment was so profound for me. And obviously, I've never forgot it. It was a long time ago. But these are the types of insights that can arise when we allow ourselves to practice. We can feel depths of compassion and love and connection and kindness. So insight is one thing that can happen. Another thing that can happen, another promise of this practice is the promise of equanimity. Equanimity is a word that we don't typically use in the English language, but it means even-mindedness or balance, a mind that is at peace, right? In spite of the conditions. As we practice moment after moment being present with our experience, we start to have a mind that is kind of okay, even when it rains, it stops raining, it rains, it stops raining, but we can be okay. Or there's knee pain, but instead of having to move and shift and change it, or grit our teeth and bear it, we simply attend to it with curiosity and openness and notice the coming and going of the physical sensation without being swept away by it. And we feel a deep kind of inner peace, a deep letting go that's happening as we are present to it. And it's amazing when we touch into this feeling of equanimity, this state of mind that's so powerful, a mind of non-reactivity, a mind that can be okay in spite of conditions. This is what you're fostering here. This is what moment after moment you are doing on this, on this um, meditation retreat. I was, um, this was a last, about six months ago, I was taking my daughter, who's four years old, to see a, pl- a play. And my daughter's quite introverted. She doesn't like a lot of activity and noise and 
other kids so much and um, too many kids. And we, she really wanted to go see this play. I really wanted to take her to see it. And we got there and um, it was just packed and there were tons of kids and they were running around and they were super noisy. And I immediately started to feel disappointed. Like I could, um, that, that uh, she was going to want to leave and I really wanted her to see it. And so I, I went into the kind of everything's fine mode, smiley face, like, oh, look, it's not too bad. There's not that many kids. It's not so noisy. And my daughter looked up at me and she said, Mommy, it is noisy. There are too many kids, but I can handle it. (laughs) And it was such a powerful teaching for me because it's not about being able to shift the conditions so we can have exactly what we want at every moment. And it's not about uh, pretending that things are a different way than they really are. But what this practice does is it cultivates a mind that can have a capacity to be present with whatever is happening in life. This is an amazing gift. If we can have a mind that can be present with whatever life brings... Today in one of the groups, someone was asking for a definition of happiness. And I said, I think the best definition that I liked is the radical willingness to be with things as they are. The radical willingness to be with things as they are. So it's like equanimity. It's maybe the fruit of equanimity, joy, happiness, when we can live from that place. And my guess is you've all touched into it. You've all had moments of this. It's available to you by doing this, this practice. The last piece I'll mention is just that there's the insight and wisdom piece, there's the equanimity that arises, and then there's also the opening of our hearts, the compassion and the kindness and the love that is cultivated as we do this practice where suddenly we feel love for the little lizard that we see going through or the turkey walking by or the person that today we were irritated with, suddenly our heart opens. And this is, there's something about doing this practice that breaks down the separation, where we begin to recognize the shared humanity of all of us, that we're all in this together. And we begin to see the interconnection just in the way we saw the interconnection of all the countless forces that created that raisin we explored today. And our heart begins to soften and our heart begins to soften to ourselves. And we begin to be more and more of living from a place of love in this world. That our default place of living, which for most of us tends to be, we live in anxiety, fear, and separation. But as we practice, we start living more from love and connection. And I have seen this happen again and again and again. Our brain shifts, our mind and heart shifts. But as we do this practice, we open more and more to love. I was going to quote something, but I can't find it. (laughs) So in that case, I think I'll just leave us with, with the possibility of more love, of more depth of compassion, of care and kindness that we will take out into this world and transform this world because this world needs it so desperately in these times. And we can be that and we can do that. So let's close our eyes for a moment. And let's take a breath. Feeling ourselves present and connected.
And see if you can contemplate the possibility of a mind with more wisdom, more compassion, more even-mindedness. And that this is our true nature. It's not the anxiety and fear, sadness, separation and disconnection. But our true nature is this love, this goodness. So as I say this, notice what happens inside you. And remind yourself of a moment in time where one of these qualities was very obvious to you in your life. And as you remember that, really let yourself feel it. What did it feel like to have this depth of compassion or love or connection or goodness? And take it in. Because this is your birthright. This is you. So we will move to the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.